Hi there, I'm Jessie Cook and you're listening to Side Dance Season 2, an evidence-based, research-informed dance science podcast. I'm here today with Adam and Joe talking about research and strength and conditioning in the Royal Ballet. Adam is a strength and conditioning coach who has been working with the Royal Ballet for the last five seasons. During this time, Adam has developed an interest in furthering our understanding of the salient sport-specific markers in ballet, such as jumping. This curiosity has led Adam to embarking on a PhD investigating injury and jumping in elite professional ballet dancers. Adam studied his BSc in Strength and Conditioning Science and MSc in Sport Rehabilitation at St Mary's University, Twickenham. Adam has also gained accreditation with the United Kingdom Strength and Conditioning Association and the British Association of Sport and Exercise Sciences. Joe is a PhD researcher at the Royal Ballet and St Mary's University investigating training load in professional ballet dancers and its relationship with injury risk and performance. Prior to joining the company, Joe completed a BSc in Sport and Exercise Science and an MSc in Exercise Physiology at Loughborough University and has worked in professional football and athletics, completing research projects into middle distance running performance and the relationship between training load and injury. Hi Adam and Joe, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Hi Jasmine, thanks for inviting us on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having us Jazz, it's great to be on. If you just start with a little bit about yourself, so a bit about your career, how you got to where you are now and where your interest in dance science comes from. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm from a sporting background, so um, did my undergraduate degree in sport and exercise science at Loughborough University um, and during that time took a sandwich year and went and worked at Nottingham, Nottingham Forest FC, um, initially with their, their under-21s and then subsequently their first team. Uh, so kind of doing um, load and fatigue and uh, wellness monitoring, um, as well as kind of bits of nutrition and, and supporting the delivery of strength and conditioning. Um, and then after that, went back to um, Loughborough for my final year. And while I was there, provided sports science support to the men's first team. Um, and I also wrote my dissertation at that point, looking at, at training load in academy football. Um, then went on to uh, stay at Loughborough, did my uh, master's in exercise physiology. And uh, while I was there, got the opportunity to write my research project with um, the English Institute of Sport and British Athletics, looking at critical speed and D-prime in uh, elite middle distance runners. Um, yeah, and then after my master's, I was kind of really keen to um, do a PhD in looking at load monitoring as I kind of really picked up that interest from, from my time in football. Um, and and this, this project at, at the Royal Ballet came up and, um, you know, it, it was a really fantastic team and, and a, you know, a really exciting opportunity to um, do, some, do some training load research you know, in a really much needed um, field and a much needed area, um, which could hopefully make kind of a, a real impact on practice. I guess it's pretty similar. I, um, although I studied strength and conditioning at undergraduate level, um, and I did this at St. Mary's University. Um, so at that point in time, I was really interested in sport. I had no background in dance. I was quite a competitive weightlifter um, through my time at university. So that was kind of um, facilitated my background and, and a lot of my philosophies in strength and conditioning as well, I'd say. And then during that time, I was, uh, you know, took part in a couple of different internships. So I was with um, London Welsh RFC for a little bit, London Bronco scholarship team for a little bit, and then did a lot of student support as well. So worked with the women's rugby union team, the men's rugby league team, 
and the men's rowing team. Um, and then also completed my UKCA accreditation while I was doing my undergrad as well. So uh, I was accredited strength and conditioning coach, I think in about 2010. When I finished that, I transitioned straight into a master's. So um, they also do a strength and conditioning master's at St. Mary's, but I didn't want to do exactly the same thing. So I did sports rehabilitation, which is similar to physio, but not quite the same. Um, and this really facilitated um, me being able to deliver or apply my strength and conditioning to rehab, particularly like mid and early stage rehab, I would say, and just facilitated my ability to, you know, communicate effectively with physios. Um, so I did that for, I think, just over a year or about a year. And then during this time, uh, I was also a graduate assistant at St. Mary's University. So lecturing on the undergraduate degree programs across, I think, sports science, coaching science, strength and conditioning. Um, and I was also the head weightlifting coach of the weightlifting team at St. Mary's. Um, and then I finished this and I, I really wanted to go into applied practice at this point, um, but I wasn't sure exactly where. Um, I didn't have a sort of any one particular preference at that point in time. I was just seeing what the general landscape looked like. Um, and I stumbled across this role at the Royal Ballet. Um, so for those who don't know, you know, the sports science, strength and conditioning services are tendered out. So they're not employed in-house. So it was the, the company that um, held the contract at that point in time were advertising for another strength and conditioning coach. So they interviewed me um, and I was successful in getting that job. And yeah, I've been there now five seasons. This is my sixth season. Um, and then my position over that period of time has changed quite a lot. So I did a year full time with the company um, under that employer. Um, and then uh, the contract then got switched and is now held by St. Mary's University. So I was reemployed by St. Mary's. Um, and I did two years 50-50 between the Royal Ballet School and the Royal Ballet Company. Um, so that was quite interesting because at that point they didn't have any SNC input at the Royal Ballet School. Um, so it was fun sort of being the first one there to try and implement some, some of the um, SNC strategies that are sort of more commonplace at the company. Uh, and then after that two year period, I then went back to being full-time at the Royal Ballet Company and then over the last year or so, I've also started my PhD. Yeah, sure. That's so recent. I didn't realise that it was that recent at the Royal Ballet School. Um, just for each of you, so I don't know if you want to go like Joe, then Adam again, maybe an overview about your PhD. So today we're looking at injury, jumping and training loads. So what's the main focus for each of you and what have you looked at so far? My PhD is investigating training load in professional ballet dancers. And, and really that, that's training load and its implications for um, performance and injury risk. I think my, my PhD can probably broadly be split, split into kind of two parts. Firstly, um, you know, what, what do we already know about training load in, in ballet from um, either research that um, other academics have done or uh, from kind of some of the data that we have in-house? The kind of second part of that being, you know, moving forward, how can we collect training load and how can we do it better? Yeah, I suppose that's understanding different different methods of collecting training load. So um, looking at things like session RPE, looking at wearable technology, what can those things um, kind of tell us about yeah, the, the, the stresses our, our dancers face? Yeah, so I suppose that kind of um, brings us to where, where we are at the moment, which is moving forward, how can we collect data efficiently? Having Joe start his PhD 
you know, maybe what, two years ago, I think, Joe, was, you know, and, yeah. and seeing sort of Joe progress in that is probably one of the key factors which like push me into applying to do this PhD. Um, just because I was like equally passionate about, you know, jumping and and um, and just progressing what we know about ballet in, in our environment. So mine um, has been looking at um, injury and jumping in professional ballet. So one of my first papers is going to be reporting sort of five years worth of epidemiology research in the Royal Ballet. And then that will be used partly to rationalize further research into jumping and landing in professional ballet dancers, just because um, if you look at Nick Allen's work and his sort of historical injury work, he's shown that a lot of the injuries were, the mechanism of injury was jumping and landing actions. Um, and we've had very similar um, results in this study. So that kind of underpins a need for it further. Uh, so yeah, so I've just pretty much finished all of my well, getting close to finishing all of my data collection. And, and we're going to look at a couple of different things across jumping in landing, such as foot position and floor surface properties and the reliability of jumping across different positions, etc. Yeah, sure. So a little bit about your process and methods so far each um, and not published yet, but any key findings that you could share as well? I suppose the thing that um, both Adam and I have been, been working on most recently is this kind of... Um, uh, five-year study looking at um, kind of scheduling and medical data over the past five years. So um, I'm sure Adam will speak a little bit about kind of some of the injury side of that. But for me, that's been um, breaking down kind of our rehearsal and performance schedules and trying to understand a little bit better what, what those schedules look like and, and why they are the way that they are. Um, and so, you know, a, a most basic level I suppose that's um, just the sheer amount of, of kind of volume of rehearsal and performance which that's done so you know the number of hours we're doing a week I'm sure everyone who, who works in this field knows that it's pretty high um, for us you know if, depending on kind of sex and rank it, it's across the entire season probably somewhere between about 25 and 30 hours a week um, but you know it's really not uncommon to see um, weeks that that go you know well beyond that and then you know kind of looking at the maybe a little bit deeper into specific productions understanding why a certain production might maybe incur a certain you know a greater number of hours than another um, and so some of the things we've looked at are, are new creations versus existing work the, those new creations as you might expect probably lead to somewhere like kind of 30 to 40 hours more rehearsal per dancer um, for a new creation compared to what they might be expected to do for an existing work. You know, the length of the production, what the impact of that is on the rehearsal time required, the number of performances that they might have to complete. And I suppose trying to understand how we make that process more efficient. You know, certain productions are, are really efficient to stage in terms of the, the number of rehearsal hours that, that we have to complete. So if we've done something very recently, maybe we did it in the previous season, if it's something where um, choreography doesn't need to be newly created, we expect to be able to stage that, that production with a, a fewer number of rehearsal hours. And equally, if we have maybe a, it's a full length duration that has a really long performance run, then we're kind of getting a lot of bang for our buck in terms of the amount of performance we're getting for the amount of rehearsal that we're completing. Um, so yeah, I think that's kind of the, the recent kind of thing we've been doing is, 
is exploring those relationships and trying to give some recommendations to artistic staff regarding how we can more efficiently yeah you know essentially how can we how can we reduce the number of hours that, that are required for our dancers to to complete in order to you know kind of produce the same performance outputs um as joe mentioned we've got this big five-year data set and and joe just sort of talked through that um rehearsal scheduling side of it for the last five years and some of the findings that that have come out of um, his investigation into that so um, what I looked at is the injury epidemiology for the last five years so I guess some of the sort of primary things that we were looking at is injury instance rates per 1000 hours which is like the done thing in this type of research and we ran um, a couple of models to to sort of look at some of the statistical differences across sex rank sex rank interaction month of season and then across month uh, across season as well so we found for example that apprentices were getting injured less than more senior ranking dancers like first soloists and principals um, so this was quite an interesting study um, because some of the previous research in uh, injury epidemiology and dance has suggested that you know, that transition period from pre-professional to professional dancing is, is like a higher risk for injury. However, by comparison to these more senior ranking dancers, we found the opposite. So I think that was quite an interesting finding for us. Um, and I guess in our minds, it probably, it makes a lot of sense because we would associate um, like more challenging and physically demanding casting associated with senior ranking dancers. So it, it really aligned with what we expected to see. Um, but perhaps hasn't been reflected in the research previously. So I guess that's what we would consider like a relatively new finding. Um, and then one of the other statistical findings that we had was that um, injury instance rates were much higher early season than they were later season. And I guess I should probably take a step back here because I talk about injury instance rates and real realistically we had two different definitions for injury. So, um, we had the more typical time loss injury definition, which is essentially any dancer who has had um, some form of restriction or time completely off dance for 24 hours or more. That's what would fall into a time loss injury definition. However, we also use this another definition called medical attention, um, which is a, essentially if a dancer would go and see a physiotherapist or the doctor, they'd have a consultation or appointment or some sort of treatment, but they would have no change in their um, dance activity so then there's there's no associated time loss but it's a medical attention event so we looked at these two different definitions so essentially it just captures all the things that a time loss definition wouldn't capture um, and when I talk about the significant differences we saw across the month so the start and the end we saw those in medical attention injuries so essentially we have a higher incidence of dancers coming into the medical department and reporting, potentially reporting issues that are, could potentially lead to further time loss injuries, um, early season and late season. So, so yeah, that was quite an interesting finding. Um, and we, you know, there's a couple of different reasons that we might associate with that. It could be that, um, you know, it could justify the need for a more comprehensive preseason at the start of a season. Um, it could suggest that we need to ease back into ballet a little bit more progressively. Um, and then looking towards why we see high injury rates at the back end of the season, um, there could be, it could be the fact that dancers are potentially managing things until the end of the season because they want to get through. 
And then it, when it comes to the final month of the season, they then disclose these injuries, which can then be addressed over the, the summer period. Um, or alternatively, um, we see um, a higher proportion of mixed bill productions at the back end of our season. And one of the other things we looked at was um, the injury incidence rates across like different production types and production lengths. So we didn't look at, we didn't do a statistical analysis on this, but we did just look at the number of injuries per 1000 hours. Um, and we separated it into a um, production type um, where it was either a um, new creation or an existing works. Um, and we found that um, these were pretty similar across the two, those two definitions. Um, however, we also looked at it across production length. So we sort of looked at um, injuries associated with full length uh, production, such as you know, Swan Lake or Nutcracker, for example, versus um, mixed, uh, shorter productions that would make up a mixed bill production. So you, know, you could have anywhere between two or three or four different smaller ballets that make up uh, production in these mixed bills. And we found pretty high injury or, or much higher injury incidence rates in these mixed bill productions compared to these um, full length ballets. So I guess going back to why we might have seen a higher incidence rate at the end of the season is perhaps because we see more of these mixed bill productions at the end of the season. Um, so yeah, that's just a few of the uh, in interesting findings associated with that. Um, we did look at like some other like etiology factors. So, you know, the percentage and number of injuries associated with different mechanisms of injury, which is then kind of feeding into sort of future research around jumping and landing. I think it was around, you know, 30 or 40% of our injuries are occurring from that mechanism in particular. Um, and that's probably why, you know, I in particular am interested in looking that in a little bit more detail. Yeah, sure. That's all like so interesting. I could literally listen to that all day. That leads really nicely on what would you like to look into further in the future with future research, I guess? Yeah, so um, I guess like some of the data that I'm collecting right now um, is kind of going to answer some of those questions that have come out of um, my initial injury research. So um, um, and then led to I mean, all of these things normally lead to more questions than they answer, don't they? So um, I've been collecting a lot of data on not only jumping, but also isometric strength profiles. So like, you know, I guess my interest comes from like how we also profile jumping in our, our environment and what are the sort of key things to look at. Um, so first and foremost, I wanted to look at like, you know, the relationship between like strength and jumping. So there's like certain strength parameters influence how someone will take off and land, for example. Now it's quite challenging to do that with like relatively small sample sizes. So, you know, whether I'm actually able to do that or not at the end of my PhD, um, we're yet to see, but hopefully we're working towards it um, and trying to get those numbers. In the meantime, um, you know, one of the things that I want to do as well is, is try and establish some of the isometric strength protocols that we use a little bit better in the research because they're not well reported on. So for example, um, I mean, some of them are, so, you know, an isometric squat or an isometric mid thigh pull is like really well reported on in the research and their reliability and their application into the research is quite clear. However, um, there is less research looking at isometric plantar flexion 
Um, and that's something that we measure quite frequently, both in standing and in seated, to either get a bias towards like the tricepsurae um, as a whole in standing versus the soleus only in seated. And that's just primarily primarily because like the gastrocnemius and plantaris, for example, are biarticular muscles. So when we flex the knee, we put them in a mechanically disadvantaged position and we can bias the soleus. So one of the things I want to look at then is, you know, if we're using those tests to um, look at the strength of dancers, are they reliable to do that? So one of my next study is going to be, yeah, just, just reporting the reliability of those measures, which will then show that they're reliable. That research will then feed into some of my jump research later down the line once I've analysed that all and, and kind of put it all together. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of what's directing me. I, I hope I didn't miss anything there, um, but I'll let Joe sort of talk about where his research is going next. I suppose for for me, there's um, I guess two kind of main directions that that I'd like um, this this kind of bit of research to go. And and the first one of those is, is following the footsteps of of a number of kind of um, research groups at the moment. So. Um, of Judd Kalkoven's work, um, looking at kind of tissue-specific load and load capacity, um, and Emily Mateevich, who's done some work using um, inertial measurement units to try and kind of start quantifying those things during running. And so that's the first direction, is, is try and, um, I guess, advance where we are with wearables um, within ballet to start understanding um, physiological tissue-specific loading that, that's going on within our dancers. And the reason for that is primarily from a rehabilitation point of view. You know, if, if we're um, rehabilitating someone who has uh, maybe from a tibial stress fracture, if we've got a good idea of, of the tibial load that they're undertaking during that rehab pathway, then um, that's gonna be, you know, a really practically useful thing for our, our you know, physios and, and um, S&C coaches to know. And then the second thing is, is I guess, you know, the other side of that relationship, the, the physiological tissue capacity. And the thing there is try and understand why or are, are dancers who are, um, have better developed physical qualities, um, are they more resilient to injury? So, and, and I think the, the reason for that is because within this environment, it's, it's difficult to influence the um, rehearsal and performance schedules um, and even if we can influence those rehearsal and performance schedules you know our our, our ability um, as a field to accurately quantify what someone's um, load or you know tissue load or damage is is, is really quite limited um, but what we do know is is we know how to make people stronger um, and we know how to develop different physiological capacity so I think if if we can if we have some research showing that that we can do those things um, then there's really good justification for um, you know us us focusing research towards um, developing more robust um, dancers. Yeah so moving into more of the applied side then can you tell us a bit about what strength and conditioning looks like in the company so a bit about how it's delivered and what the engagement is like from the dancers? Yeah of course I, I guess I should probably take this one Strength and conditioning at the Royal Ballet is not compulsory for the dancers, so they don't have to engage in it if they don't want to. And I think, um, you know, one of the reasons that that 
is the way it is, is just because of the barriers associated with the rehearsal schedule, which kind of Joe talked about um, previously, where, you know, you just see such high volumes of rehearsals, um, which is because we've got multiple castings for many dancers in a single ballet, and then we're running multiple ballets at any one point in time. So you can see how it adds up very, very quickly. So if they're, you know, if they're engaging in six to eight rehearsals, there are real logistical challenges with um, scheduling that for 90 odd dancers um, because they're all on different schedules as well. So then that added, you know, to add then strength and conditioning for those 90 dancers on top of that is like a scheduling feat in itself. So, so we're not quite at that point yet. So the dancers essentially, um, if they do engage with it, they do so off their own back. Um, I would say we have like a pretty high percentage of the company that engage in some sort of um, physiological training. So, excuse me, whether that's um, strength and conditioning or Pilates and gyrotonics or working with the physio to manage something that they've got going on, I'd say we see probably, you know, a, a very high percentage of the company um, I can't speak to exact numbers for the SNC engagement, but for example, we have around, I think probably around 65 to 70 dancers engage in profiling each year. And I think that's pretty reflective of how many would then engage in the SNC and, and Pilates and gyrotonics delivery across the year as well. So, so, so the, the levels of engagement that we do see is also quite varied. So I would say, um, you know, you, you could almost look at it from three different levels. You have dancers who all just rock up and they almost engage on the microcycle level where, you know, they could just turn up on any given day um, and we'll have to have a, you know, open discussion around what they've got on on that day, um, what they've had the previous couple of days, what they've got moving forward over the next couple of days and try and figure out um, exactly what they need as well. So that might be based off of some of their historical profiling data and some of the baseline data that we have on them. And then also balancing what with what they want to do as well, because that may not align with what they should be doing. Um, and then make a plan as to like what might be appropriate on that day, for example. So they might need to get significantly stronger around their lower extremity, but if they've got a show that night, it may not be appropriate to do heavy squats that day, for example. Um, so second to that, you might have um, a dancer who will engage on like the um, mesocycle level. So they'll um, maybe be a little bit more independent, but still work very closely with us, but they have, you know, might be more confident to work on their own as well. So in those instances, you might have a dancer say, you know, this is the specific physical quality that I'm interested in. And, you know, maybe that, or maybe be open to a discussion around what they think they should be working on and, and we'll test and profile around that. So, you know, whether it's strength, we might look at a variety of different strength measures, you know, whether it's jumping and power, we might look at a variety of different jump tests in combination with some strength tests, um, or whether it's cardiovascular, we might look at some sort of capacity or, or um, uh, some sort of aerobic test. Um, and then what we'll do for those dancers is potentially write like a six to 12 week program. Um, and then that will be completed either independently or in conjunction with myself or the other SNC coaches. Um, and they'll do that 
you know, so that they'll have a lot more structure in exactly what they're going to do, what days, and then it will just be a balance of managing that with their weeks, um, with their specific weeks, because their weeks are only scheduled the week before. So we don't know exactly what's going to come up each week. Um, so there's a bit of management there to do as well around what their actual microcycle looks like. Um, and then you get, you know, this is very rare, but you do have some dancers who will engage on the macro cycle level. So essentially you sit down and plan out their entire season. Um, so I've done this with a dancer before where we've just planned out all of their big shows. Um, what are some of the key physiological qualities associated with those shows that we might want to improve? Um, and then identify like the real hot spots in the season for the, that dancer, um, where we essentially say, okay, this isn't, SNC or physical preparation is not a priority during this period of time. So we're going to just use this as a transition period where you just focus on performance um, and then identify, okay, these are the areas where we could potentially push in and like, we're okay being a little bit tired um, because this is the only time where we're going to be able to drive some sort of adaptation, whether that's upper body strength, lower body strength, whole body power, whatever it might be. Um, so yeah, so I guess, you know, you kind of get these different levels of, of how SNC is delivered in the company, um, which is in part due to the challenges around um, scheduling and um, delivering like large group-based SNC. That all being said, it's slightly different now to how it has been in previous seasons because of COVID-19. So because of the nature of COVID and, and the way it's been operating and we're needing more space, because so the, the you know the Royal Ballet has been back for a number of number of months doing class and, and some rehearsals because they come under the categorization of elite sport. Um, we've been doing a lot more group-based SNC in a studio where we have much more space. So then there has been a lot more structure across the board to the SNC delivery, which I think has been quite positive for a number of people. So in particular, those dancers who might engage on a microcycle level, they're now almost being bumped up to that mesocycle level where they then have this longitudinal strategy in place and they're seeing physical qualities develop at a faster rate than perhaps they previously had. So for example, I've seen a number of girls go from squatting relatively infrequently and, and kind of maybe not overly engaged because they're you know, hit a plateau and they don't make significant improvements because it's very challenging to squat around a really super busy schedule to then these same female dancers now doing, you know, more than hitting body weight or more than body weight for eight repetitions. So like things like that, it's just, it's, you know, you do have these small silver linings that are coming out of COVID-19 and, and some of the changes that we've had to make as a consequence. Yeah, so like you touched on just then, profiling might come into this. So what's the process then for profiling in the company if it's not compulsory? And how is that then used to develop their SNC? Yeah, so um, we do pre-season profiling at the start of every year. Um, this has been um, like a pretty set process in terms of what we actually test with some minor changes and tweaks that have sort of come and gone over the years. So um, essentially how that will run is that they come in one by one, they have a designated slot in the day and we'll do it over the course of maybe two or three days. Um, and they'll first go in to see the physios and do some range of motion tests. So we typically look at hip rotation, 
um, and knee to wall, so their ankle dorsiflexion range. Um, and then historically, we've occasionally looked at like handheld dynamometry, so like hip abduction or external rotation strength. They then come into the gym where they do jump testing. So we'll look at some counter movement jumps. Um, and more recently, we've introduced seated isometric force testing of the plantar flexors. So then we have um, like a gross measure of soleus strength. Um, following this, they will typically, or it might be prior to this, where they've either done a um, Y balance test, which if you're not familiar with this, is where you're stood on one leg, you reach directly forward, you reach posterior lateral, and then you reach posterior medial, and you do that on both legs. So it's a measure of kind of like strength and balance. Um, and then they also do a calf capacity test as well. So a unilateral calf capacity test to a metronome. So um, I believe we have it on 60 beats per minute. So they do a calf raise every minute, um, sorry, every second, uh, 60 beats per, sec per minute. So it's one calf raise every second, not one every minute, that would be horrible. Um, and uh, so we look at capacity and, and historically we've um, left this uncapped, but we saw like, like a huge range where, you know, some people would have lower scores and then some people would be up around 80 or 90 repetitions. So we've actually capped this at 35 reps now, um, which again, like we're just continually reviewing as to whether this should be higher or um, it's fine as it is. Um, and then like historically we've looked at, um, you know, trunk capacity tests like plank or side plank, but those ones we, um, they can sometimes come and go from year to year, depending on, um, you know, whether we have a recent measure across the company or how interest we, interested we might be around their trunk capacity compared to other aspects. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's a balancing game, I think, because it's not compulsory, it's about finding um, the bare minimum of tests that we need to do across everyone and maximizing the speed at which people can get through that testing and the how negatively it, it affects them in the following days. So, you know, just for example, if they do a calf capacity test and they do 80 reps and then they can't walk for the next two days, let alone do ballet, then, you know, that's that's not really conducive for anything. So it's a, it's a, it's a fine balance, I would say. Um, so once they've essentially done all of these tests, which might take them 30 minutes or so, um, they will then go immediately into a meeting, a one-to-two um, meeting with the clinical director and our ballet rehab coach, um, and they'll discuss those results. So those results are all inputted to our data management system as they go, so it's live. Um, so by the time they get into that meeting, all of those results are pulled into one form and then they're discussed in line with previous uh, historical results. So for example, you know, we'll look at their historical jump heights or landing forces um, and how they scored on that particular year of profiling compared to their previous data. We might look at the previous year's worth of injuries and whether they're giving them any jip any longer or whether they've been completely resolved. And then that will be wrapped up into, you know, three things that that dancer would like to work on or improve on this season moving forward. And then some recommendations from them in terms of how they might achieve that. So, for example, they might want to um, improve their turnout and they might have a deficit in their external uh, rotation range of motion. Um, and then there might be some strategies on how to develop that or, for example, their seated uh, 
plantar flexion isometric strength might be low relative to the company average. And we, we typically measure that in like times body weights. So our company average, I believe, is around 1.7 times body weight. Um, so if we saw a dancer that might be able to produce 1.5 times their body weight on a seated plantar flexion, then there might be recommendations that um, additional calf strength training would be recommended. And this would probably be emphasized if they then had a low calf capacity as well. So that's how these this sort of testing can feed into the decision making um, or the recommendations off the back of profiling. And then me personally, as an SNC coach, I can then look at that data because that's all saved in our data management system. I can review that data early season and get an idea of what each dancer what their deficits might be, whether um, additional testing is recommended by um, the clinical director and the ballet rehab coach, um, or whether there's just very clear um, goals and strategies in place and just follow that guidance. There's obviously what, what that profiling gives you is not only that, that data to um, identify any risk factors um, and data that's useful, you know, when, when returning someone to dance following an injury or um informing you know adam's programming throughout the year um but you know it, it also just initiates that conversation you know so it's typically the first thing they'll do following the summer break it just opens a dialogue regarding um any issues they might have had um and i you know i guess in terms of what adam was saying earlier about i got some of that programming it it just starts that conversation about you know what is it you want to work on this year and and you know how are we going to go about doing that yeah, sure. That's a great overview. Um, looking at rehab then, which last time we spoke, you mentioned is kind of more structured than SNC, maybe for the reasons you've just outlined there. But in what way is it more structured and why do you think that that is? Yeah, I would, I would say that rehab is generally more structured um, primarily because once a dancer is injured, or I guess, you know, taking a step back from that, there's just fewer injured dancers than there are dancers engaging in proactive SNC. So if you think of it just from a, uh, a pool of dancers that you're having to work with, it's much smaller. And because you're, our our, the size of our department is, you know, is, is the size it is, it's, it's limited in, in what it can achieve with a cohort of 90 dancers. It's, it can probably achieve more in a cohort of five or 10 dancers that might have sustained an injury at, at any one point in time or however many that is. So I think, um, yeah, so, so when looking at, at, at rehabilitating dancers we just have more time to invest because there's fewer of them so in the way that that will actually look is once a dancer sustains an injury say it's a long-term injury like an acl rupture or you know maybe a pars fracture or um, whatever it might be um, or they undergo surgery for whatever reason um, they will then have a snc coach a ballet rehab coach um, a Pilates and gyrotonics instructor and a physio kind of wrapped around them to support them along that process. Um, and then more recently, um, someone like Joe, so like a Joe being a performance scientist, being able to bring in some of his data analysis around accelerometers. Um, so they'll have a team wrapped around them, which will meet, say, every six to eight weeks, um, where they'll discuss, you know, what that dancer um, what their goals are over the next sort of six to eight weeks, um, how those goals are then going to be measured, um, and then what strategies we're going to employ to achieve those goals. 
and then which practitioners will feed into which aspects of that. So, for example, the, the goals and strategies of Pilates might be slightly different from strength and conditioning, um, just because they'll have, you know, different equipment and different strategies available to them. Um, and then this will just be, this will just work the whole way along through the rehab process sequentially, um, from early stage rehab all the way till their return to dance. Yeah, so how might the application of load monitoring play a role here? And what does this look like practically? Really specific um, detailed load monitoring it is, as Adam said, like a, a relatively recent um, development within this. Um, and so I think, you know, we had a couple of rehabs uh, last year where, where we had really um, some really good impact from um, starting to understand things like um, jump load and kind of ground contacts and, and the, the mechanical load that might be um, incurred from, from that. And, um, you know, I, th I think firstly that provides a means by which um, we can kind of use that data to inform decisions um, on the fly a little bit. So, you know, I remember one example we had last year is where we had a dancer rehabbing who um, was you know, I, I guess starting to feel a little lethargic. Um, and so one of the things we did is have a little look at kind of some of his, his loading over the, the previous few weeks. Um, and we, we kind of said, look, he's, he's maybe done a, a lot, maybe slightly more than, than we anticipated doing. You know, can we just um, reorganize that schedule so we put the deload week maybe one week earlier based on that? So, you know, from that point of view, it's not there to, again, you know, like I said, to pull people out, but it's there maybe just to add another dimension to the decision-making and, and kind of inform that strategy a little better. Um, and then the second part, I guess, is kind of building on some of this um, research into what dictates some of the scheduling um, and using that to hopefully, you know, this will be something moving forward that we can, we can use that data to plan someone's return to performance a little better. So what that might mean is looking at the productions we've got coming up and using kind of some of the factors that we know about those productions, which are related to the amount of work someone might be required to do. Um, and just use kind of that, that information regarding the volume of work they're going to do um, to aid to some of, I, I suppose, the, um, the experience and practitioner wisdom of some of our artistic staff or um, someone like Brian Maloney, our, our ballet rehab coach, um, you know, who, who might say, well, let's think about the, what they might be expected to do within those productions and combining that with the data to say, this is how much they might be expected to do. Um, so yeah, from, from that perspective, hopefully we can, we can monitor on the fly and then also um, use, use those kind of ideas about load to, uh, to plan the progression a little better. Yeah, perfect. So you've just touched on it there, but um, working with artistic staff is often a big part of SNC delivery, especially in dance. So what's this like in the company on a day-to-day -day basis, but also in terms of presenting research? Um, so from an SNC perspective, I'd say it's um, pretty straightforward. Our primary communications are sort of with the rehabilitating dancers. So we have bi-weekly meetings with the artistic staff where our whole medical team will be involved in a meeting. And that's where we will communicate um, specific um, goals or timeframes that dancers are returning back to the company. 
but from a research perspective and and sort of a, a communication perspective i guess we've started to implement some different strategies from um, joe's research so we've been using our data management system to start to facilitate some of the discussions around joe's uh, findings from his workload research so i'm gonna i'll let him touch on that because he can talk about a little bit more about again you know what's contributing to those higher workloads and then some of the um data that we're using to then communicate back to the artistic staff you know what once adam and i were starting to get through this um five-year study and, and starting to get some answers that that we thought thought might be helpful um we shared this with with our healthcare team um and then um, our clinical director shane kelly thought you know this this is a really great time um i suppose with with the current um you know situation uh, it's a really good good time to start having some of those conversations uh and so you know he got us in front of um the artistic team and just presenting some of that that research and starting to have those conversations and i think you know adam and i are really lucky that you know even before adam got here um you know there was someone like greg retter who was our, our formal former clinical director starting to engage the artistic staff in things you know in in language like load and so actually you know we're not going in at a blank canvas they they have a some level of understanding of what that means um and i think those those sessions where adam and i were able to present the results of, of some of these studies were really helpful um you know just in terms of developing that understanding from them of some of the implications of this load and so yeah i think as adam touched on there building some of those um findings into dashboards on our data management system well they're around um promoting the use of of training principles really so whether that's just highlighting when someone's maybe um experiencing a period of very low chronic load when someone's um, experiencing a spike in, in the amount of hours that they're being expected to do, just giving them a little flag. And, and that's not about, again, pulling them out, but it's about just saying, um, let's, let's start thinking about when we um, schedule some of, some of the rehearsals and some of the performances. Um, you know, let's think about some of those principles when we do it. Yeah, so the last thing today then, I guess I recognise it's a reach, but are there any principles that you've found to be effective in the company for injury prevention or for performance enhancement that smaller dance schools could begin to use? So I guess what I'm wondering is from what you know and everything you've found, what advice would you give to them? I guess from uh, I can speak to my injury research a little bit and I, I'm sure Joe will, um, will sort of build on this afterwards. But I think, um, you know, I, looking at early like the season the injuries by season month is demonstrated that the hot spots are probably at the start of the season and potentially at the end of the season i'd say with more confidence at the start of the season so i think that can be applied in any context in dance where you consider you know how are you preparing your dancers physically at the start of a season or um the start of a school year um, and like, how are you gradually reintroducing your dancers back into ballet? You know, what does that look like? How formalized is that? And what are the key things to consider? So something as simple as, like, you know, the volume of jumps, no jump days, um, the building of um, Petit Allegro and Grand Allegro and, and how this layers up from week to week. 
um, are probably some key things that can be implemented. Um, and then further to this, and, and I don't know how applicable this is in smaller dance schools or smaller dance companies, but um, just considering that, um, you know, many mixed bill productions or sorry, many smaller productions that make up a mixed bill production are likely going to um, or, or potentially going to result in a higher injury incidence than just one single full length production. Um, and just being mindful of that, if you are going to start introducing mixed bill productions. Um, and then, yeah, like kind of, I guess, building on what I've already said is, is that we know that a high volume of jumping is coming from, uh, sorry, a high, high volume of jumping, a high volume of injuries are coming from jumping and landing activities. So, so just being mindful of, of those actions in particular, um, uh, I would say a key. I think if if there are companies who who are looking to to monitor low but maybe don't have the um, you know kind of financial ability to to maybe fund something like wearables, then um, you know we've published work validating the use of session RPE um, in professional dancers. There's also um, validations from um, pre-professional for use in pre-professional dancers from uh, Annie Jeffries group and from Brenton Surgeon and Matt Wyon. So. Um, there is, you know, there's work there validating the use across kind of a whole host of different dance populations. Um, I think, you know, understanding those well-established training principles that, that there's plenty of research on kind of demonstrating their use in sport. Um, you know, those sort of things can be applied across and should be in an education for um, artistic staff who maybe aren't quite as familiar with those. Um, can be really useful. Finally, kind of understanding that, that you know, that that load injury relationship is a balance between um, you know load and load capacity. So it's not purely a case of of seeing you know the high number of hours of rehearsal and performance that a, a dance company or a dance school um, the dancers might be expected to to complete. We can also prepare them for that load, you know, with with strength training. Um, with aerobic training. So yeah, there, there are ways to kind of mitigate the risks that, that might be associated with those, that high volume of, uh, of dance, which aren't just changing, changing that volume of dance. Yeah, for sure. That's great advice. Um, it's been great chatting to you both today. Thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd like to mention or discuss? Uh, thanks very much for having us and uh, great to share some of our work. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm I'm pretty happy with all of that. I think that was pretty comprehensive. And yeah, thanks for inviting us on. It was it was great to be able to chat through our work and, and how it feeds into our roles at the Royal Ballet. Useful resources and contact details are in the description box down below. Thanks so much for listening and tune in again next Monday for another episode of Sci Dance.